You're listening to Hidden History, and I'm your host, Ellis Tucci. If you know any way that I can improve my content for you, the listener, drop me a line at hiddenhistory.show forward slash contact. To catch up on all my past episodes and hear new ones every week, head on over to your Apple Podcasts app, Spotify, or hiddenhistory.show and learn something new today. First things first. After last week's episode, there was, let's say, a specific set of people who got mad at me for doing an episode about American war crimes. Someone told me that I should change the name of the show to Propaganda and Confusion, which, I mean, I will consider your advice, but I don't think it's nearly as good of a name. Hidden History, it seems, was being accused of being political. So let me set the record straight. This is a show about history. It's always been political. My very first episode was about right-wing extremism in the 1950s. I feel kind of like I've said all of this before, because I have, right at the beginning of last episode. So the bottom line of it is, if you don't want this show to be political, too bad, it's my show. And so in tune with that, today I'm going to talk about something that is for some reason, a ridiculously polarizing issue. Today, I'm going to talk a little bit about the history of unions. This is Hidden History, and you're listening to episode 48, The Union That Works For You. Hey, on your way to work tomorrow, instead of sitting around with your finger up your ass, look around. There's a union out there called Ass Me, and they're busting their balls for you doing a lot of shit work you take for granted. For example, we pick up your fucking garbage. We got broads out there who'll keep your kids from getting run over by some hard-on. We plug up the holes in the road so you don't fuck up your car. And we push around a lot of little old ladies from Florida. We're out there zapping rats and roaches and making sure your kids don't drink piss from no fucking water fountains. We're fucking ass me. Amalgamated federalization. Hey, hey, I don't know what the fuck it means. All I know is we're hard-working, tax-paying people like you, and we don't take shit from nobody. You got that, asshole? Ask me. The fucking union that works for you. That was the audio from a 1980s joke reel recording of a commercial for AFSME, the American Federation of State, County, and Municipal Employees. Obviously, it never aired, and I can't imagine that I'm going to talk about AFSME at any other point during this episode or series, but I thought, you know, why not start off with some humor? So anyway, now that that's out of the way, Let's talk a little bit about the history of organized labor. And to do this, you know, it turns out that that labor history, you know, there's a lot of it. So what better thing to do than start at the beginning? The first strike in history. In order to do that, we're going to have to go back to ancient Egypt. Obviously, this episode is not going to focus on the ancient societies of the Mediterranean. If you want something more along those lines, I'd encourage you to check out episode 30, Ozymandias, which is all about the Bronze Age collapse. So anyway, now that the shameless plug is out of the way, let's talk about the first strike in history, the start of which we can trace back to 1159 BCE. 
the monthly wages for the laborers and artisans constructing the necropolis of Deir al-Medina were paid out late, almost a month late. The administrative powers of Egypt were conglomerated under Ramses III, and they were all occupied with preparation for a grand festival held in his honor. As a result, the underlying issues with paid dispensation were never resolved, and month after month their wages arrived consistently late. Eventually, a month came where 18 days passed from payday, and they still had nothing. So the workers threw down their tools and marched into the city, staging demonstrations and sit-ins at various temples throughout Thebes. Egyptian officials had no idea how to deal with the issue because, well, it had never really happened before. They tried to placate the striking workers with pastries, but surprise, surprise, it didn't exactly work. The next day, the strike expanded, with workers occupying the central granary, where they demanded their pay. The magistrate at the granary responded by summoning the chief of police, who told the strikers to go home. When the strikers didn't listen, he essentially said, well, sorry, I can't do anything, you guys are on your own, and left. The strike continued on for three years, with workers occupying various important religious and governmental sites around Thebes, such as the Valley of Kings, which occupied an incredibly important space in Egyptian religious custom. Over the course of this period, the purpose of the strike evolved. While it started as a simple dispute over late wages, it eventually transformed into a strike over a violation of the Egyptian custom of mutual respect, known as Ma'at. So the strike at Deir al-Medina sets the precedent and establishes expectations of the ruling class. Throughout the remainder of Egypt's kingdoms, strikes appear many more times, but these are all strikes of specific labor groups, essentially, although the term would not be invented for a few thousand years, of trade unions. What then could we consider the first general strike? a protest that transcends employment background and can be applied largely on the basis of general class. To answer this, I'm going to have to talk about ancient Rome and a form of political protest called the Secessio Plebis, or the Secession of the Plebs. Between 494 and 287 BCE, there were five different secessions. The context for these strikes can be found in a larger issue in Roman society called the Conflict of the Orders, which was a political class-based struggle between the patricians and the plebs. The patricians had rights which were not made available to the plebeians, and although the struggle of the order as a whole was largely about political rights, the first plebeian secession was spurred into action over economic issues. The plebeians were second-class citizens, and as a result, the vast majority were economically disenfranchised. In 494 BCE, a huge amount of plebeians were saddled with crushing debt. Mid-level Roman administrators and the ruling consuls didn't address the problem, and after the Senate refused to reach an agreement on the passage of debt reform, a series of escalating events climaxed with the plebeian Lucius Senecus Volutus leading the plebeians to Mons Sacer, the sacred mountain, which sat three miles outside the walls of the city. Accordingly, Rome ground to a halt. Not only did the plebeians make up the vast majority of Roman residents, but they also made up the vast majority of the Roman army. Without them, nothing functioned. 
Ultimately, the result of the First Secession was the creation of the Tribune of the Plebs, which was the first high political office open to the group. It acted as an important balance on the power of the Senate, and granted political representation, however slight, to a massive number of people. As I said earlier, this type of action is called a general strike, and it's when everyone, regardless of their occupation, lays down their tools in solidarity with a common cause. So now that we've talked about early strikes and general strikes, I want to finish off the first part of this series by talking a little bit about a really common popular misconception. I want to talk about the Luddites. What is this myth, you ask? Well, allow me to tell you. The Luddites, get this, did not hate technology. What they were protesting was the way that technology was being used. The Luddites were English textile workers who, in the beginning of the 1800s, saw the demand for their artisanal craft lowered by the emergence of mechanization. The amount of work they did in the factories increased, while their compensation did not rise in return. The Luddites did not protest the use of technology, but rather the employment of technology for exploitative ends. The Luddite movement first entered the scene in Nottingham, England in 1811. Members of the secret group met in the dead of night to practice raiding factories and destroying the machines that were the instruments of their oppression. They named the hammers that they used to smash cropping frames and knitting mills across England after Enoch Taylor, the man who had invented them, bearing it with the cry of Enoch made them and Enoch shall break them. Mill owners constructed special panic rooms where they would be safe from the Luddite wrath. The rebellion, however, only lasted a few years, ending around 1816. After multiple clashes with the army and a number of deaths on both sides, an 1813 show trial in which 60 men were tried, many of whom were not related to the movement, largely took the wind out of the Luddite's sails. The movement dissolved after that. The fact that the frame-breaking act of 1812 turned the intentional damaging of industry into a capital offense certainly did not help. Luddites, of course, have had a significant impact on the methods and impressions of labor organization, and only a few years later Luddite ideals found a place in the 1830 swing riots throughout southern England. When performing historical analysis, it's important that, well, we get the facts right. In the American education system, the history of organized labor is severely underrepresented. And so, the next few episodes, I'll be dedicating the show to the history of labor and trade unions. I hope that you've enjoyed this episode. Tune in next week, and I'm probably going to talk about the Hanseatic League, guilds, or maybe a strike or two. I'm not quite sure yet, I usually figure it out, maybe the day before. Anyway, thank you very much for listening. This is Elis Tucci at Hidden History, signing off.